You're listening to HSBC Talks Business. Learn how businesses like yours are leveraging a wide range of banking solutions to maximize their success and how HSBC is helping them. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Inspiring Progressive Female Entrepreneurs, a podcast mini-series that seeks to empower and support women who are on the journey of growing and scaling their business. We'll speak with inspiring women about their stories and get practical advice from entrepreneurs who've been there before. This podcast has been created in partnership with Albright. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining. HSBC Roar is our joint commitment to support female founders such as yourself looking to scale your business. And the program provides the tools and the connections and the confidence that you need to truly supercharge your business. We are honored to have Debbie Wasco with us today. And she's going to honor us with letting us ask a lot of questions about how we can find the practical tips to help support female founders. So my name is Claudia Adamson. I'm the head of U.S. Business Banking in the United States. And what that, what that is, is clients that are between five and 50 million turnover. So we spend a lot of time with entrepreneurs such as yourself, and we help to move you from the stage you are in today to international companies as they grow, such as, as, as Debbie's companies that she's had in the past. I'm going to hand over to Debbie just for a minute to talk a little bit about herself, and then we'll move into a bit more about the questions and, and, and letting her share some of her knowledge with us. So over to you, Debbie, for a little bit of an introduction. Hi, Claudia. I'm Debbie Wasco. I'm the co-founder of Albright, as I think most of you will probably be aware, and I'm a multi-exit entrepreneur, and Albright is my fourth business for my sins. During that time, I've built and scaled um, three different businesses. I um, have focused in the latter stages of my career on marketplaces and the sharing economy. And Albright, as many of you are aware, is my co-created business with Anna Jones to try and change the conversation for women in their careers globally. During the last 23 years, I think, I was 25 when I started my first business, I suppose uh, I've been there, done that, and worn the T-shirt. So <laughs> raised capital from individuals, angel investors, high net worth, ultra high net worth, venture capital, private equity, hedge funds, the kind of whole nine yards. And I've been through the process of um, selling businesses on three different occasions. Um, I've also acquired quite a few other businesses um, for the businesses that I owned and ran. And I'm a prolific angel investor and have invested in businesses that have had an exit. And alongside that, I sit on um, a couple of different boards and I'm a senior advisor to McKinsey and Company, which some of you may have heard of. Um, and that's my side hustle, if you like. Um, so I do a couple of days a month for them, um, helping them think about how to partner with their clients to supercharge growth in new businesses as part of McKinsey Leap, which is the business building part of McKinsey. That's probably enough on me. So hopefully wow. reasonably well qualified. Awesome. Debbie, I just, I get so excited when I hear someone like you speak and there's not many people like you actually. I mean, I mean, you mentioned, you know, you were, you know, 25 years, 25 years old when you started, you've had varied and successful career, but what was your why? 
you know, as a female founder, what was your motivation? And I guess what's your motivation today to build these incredible brands and to reach out like you do? I mean, there's many similarities between sort of 13 year old me and 47 and three quarter year old me, I think. (laughs) And I think a big part of that for me was that I'd always been surrounded by very strong women. I'm one of five sisters. Um, So I definitely grew up in a matriarchy and my grandmother um, and my mother ran their own businesses. And I'm from a Jewish immigrant family, third generation to the UK, where I didn't know anyone who had a job, like nobody in my extended family had a conventional job. Um, they all were entrepreneurs. They would never have described themselves as that because that's quite a fancy word. They would have been business <laughs> owners or, you know, and, and it was those classic kind of immigrant businesses where my grandfather sold secondhand handbags from his shooting break. And my grandmother um, on the other side ran a, a chain of sweet shops and off licenses because her husband died young. And she took over the family business. So my formative memories were partly of my grandmother driving her armored van around the north of England, dropping money off at the bank. And she, one thing I have in common with her is that we know we're terrible drivers. Um, <laughs> she never learned how to reverse, so she'd have to kind of get, like go around in a circle to get to where she was going. I think um, I've always been entrepreneurial in the way that I think and that I was the winner and Sam the Claxon of the National Young Enterprise Competition when I was 15 um, and we had a business selling hair scrunchies which I'm very glad to see our back so it was the yeah me too Actually, I've got one my, my daughters wear them it makes me feel kind of you know whole again so <laughs> I've always liked that and building something and um, I think that they, those trends around seeing women do anything and not having any sense of needing to have a conventional career path were quite formative alongside that there was academic excellence was absolutely sort of non-negotiable in my family because that's classic immigrant behavior mm-hmm. and so when I, I had a you know I was a real swat at school I went to Oxford I graduated from Oxford and um, became a management consultant you either became a management consultant or a banker or a lawyer maybe an accountant And it's kind of interesting now that I'm kind of back in the McKinsey world that that's where I started. And that was an extremely formative, brilliant first job because I had studied philosophy and theology at university, which prepared me for some good stuff like reading really fast and how to kind of argue a case and synthesize a lot of information. But I wasn't an engineering graduate and I'd done English history and politics A-levels. So I wasn't that person, I think really really developing your maths brain in your first job is really important Mm -hmm. and developing analytic skills and how to deal with clients but I never had any aspiration to be a partner in a management consultancy firm I always wanted to do my own thing and it was the beginning of dot-com one if you like for those Mm -hmm. of you who can date yourselves to that era where Mm -hmm. it felt like the first time in sort of recent career history and it's a little like now with influencers and TikTok and where being young was actually a real virtue and being young and entrepreneurial was a way to get started and nobody really minded if you didn't seem to have a lot of life experience because you understood a new form of media mm-hmm. so all of those things conspired for me to launch Mantra which was my first business at 25 and um, looking at you know faces on the call and different people doing things in different ways I'm sure but there's a lot to be recommended about setting up your first business when you're 25 because you have absolutely nothing to lose 
and that you don't have any of the responsibilities that I have now as an adult and you don't really have anyone to answer to. And my mantra then is my mantra now in life, which can sometimes get me into a lot of trouble, which is what's the worst that can happen? You know, I've always felt like that. I've always been a risk taker. I've never really seen it as a risk. I've just felt like, you know, if it doesn't work, I'll just do something else. But I, I think that, that that tenacity that you have when you're young and lack of downside, I think, was really powerful to me. So hopefully that kind of takes you through the sort of early years to, to getting started. Yeah, that's a fabulous story. And I, and I was going to ask you that question about fear. And it sounds like you've got a lot of fearlessness in you and bravery for when you first started. You know, the importance of approaching life bravely, I think, really matters. I honestly didn't feel like that at 25. It just felt like oh, this. And this is another of my things as well as what what's the worst that can happen. But I do think that you can equip yourself to succeed and you can equip yourself to be tenacious. And I feel like those things are a muscle that we as women can learn mm -hmm. how to work. And I think you learn a lot through experience. You learn a lot through screwing things up. You learn a lot through making bad decisions. You learn a lot through developing a thicker skin. And AJ and I say to each other most days today, being a good example, rhino hide darling rhino hide you know like that you just have to have that otherwise you just can't do it because things are, are tough it's hard right but the highs are high and the lows are low and I still yeah. get the highs and that's why I keep doing it yeah that's fabulous very inspiring so I mean you're young you know you've, you've achieved so much defining your legacy what do you think having a legacy in business means to you? 2016, what happened, and, and many of you might know the Albright story, is that I was at a party and I'm, I was introduced to this woman, um, Anna Jones, by <clears throat> actually someone I didn't know very well who said you two should be friends. And I think that your um, life can change in a moment. Um, stuff happens and you meet people that change your life and meeting AJ changed my life and definitely changed her. She may regret this. Um, <laughs> she had a really sensible career before she met me. So I think out of that moment of a party I nearly didn't go to and a sort of sliding doors thing came a lot of talking about normal stuff like AJ and I, for those of you who've seen us together, are very normal. We're mates, we make each other laugh we like a gin and tonic at the end of the day and you know like that but I suppose we had been ex extremely successful in our careers very different in a very different ways because AJ had been an executive and she'd gone from kind of graduate trainee to the corner office but one thing that really mattered to both of us was women AJ's one of four sisters and we had a lot in common even though it mm -hmm. felt like we had very different careers and I think we just kept coming back in our, we'd meet for breakfast or we'd meet for a cocktail and we'd kind of put the world to rights. Our kids are the same age, all that sort of stuff. But the big topic for us was where are all the women? Like we we're the right. same age. We've been at this for a long time. There are no more women now than when I started. There are no more women in entrepreneurship than when I started. Again, you'll have heard this if you're a regular Albright viewer, but you know, the stats of women raising capital have decreased in 2020 from the heady heights of 2.17% to a percent. The Future Fund, which was the government's emergency response to the pandemic in terms of supporting high growth companies invested a percent in businesses run by women. You know, mm -hmm. and I, this was my, as they like to say, lived experience because a big part of my job my actual job, and this is still the case, is being really good at asking men for money. It's like my superpower. Right. 
which if you think about it, hard enough is a bit weird, right? But it's just sort of part of life. And it's been part of our Albright life that we started off to the point on legacy. Okay, can we build something that changes the conversation for women? Project Albright after the Madeline quote, that there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. Mm because that's how we are, that's how we've been brought up. How would it be if we could create something that genuinely made a difference, drove change, lifted women up, built network skills and confidence, and wasn't a charity? This is really, really important to me because I do a lot of work for charities, primarily in the arts, because again, that's another big topic of mine is that women in the arts don't get funded. And I'm on the board of the Women's Prize for Fiction because women authors don't sell as many books as like that. So you see the kind of DNA. It's always been a bit like that. But Albright specifically was let's build a for profit business that impacts women's careers, that makes us and all of the women who work in Albright, and we're 90% female, money. And that, that again, really matters, that it's not just about spreading the word. For us, women have got to get rich, right? And they've got to deploy their capital in backing other women, because that's the only way that we change an ecosystem that, that is full of bros, which in my world, it, it really is. So I guess that's sort of it a bit on legacy. I think having children makes you think harder about it. My kids have had this very unusual upbringing because they, because I was on my own with them for so long, they just came to everything, every work trip in the school holidays they came and every, so I've got an extremely woke feminist 13 year old son. Um, And I think that's really important because I, I think that needs to be part of our legacy is that, Many of the open conversations I have with him, my parents certainly didn't have with me. So Mm -hmm. that feels important. And the same for my daughter, you know, that I've got two girls where you can already see some of the challenges around confidence and around resilience and around identity kicking in my, my daughter's 11. So all of those things make you focus, I think. But I think with legacy, It's about necessity, actually, as well as purpose. And I think we need to be really upfront about that as women. Yeah, I think that's so powerful. And when I listen to what you're saying, I think I think what you are doing with Albright and how you support women is more important now than ever. And I say that because of COVID and the numbers that we're seeing with women leaving the workforce. Now, that could pose an opportunity or a threat, because if you're leaving the regular workforce, potentially they end up being more like you, where they can start a business on their own. But some of the numbers are alarming. And and that's why I think what you're doing and what Albright does is critical right now. The lemonade in the lemons, if you like, is that I do think that the pandemic's given women the license to be more entrepreneurial. I think that Mm -hmm. we've had time to ask ourselves some of the questions that you're asking me around purpose and legacy and if we are going to work why are we working um and what's the balance of um economics versus self-determination and that self-determination point is a massive one for me I've never had a boss I like to do what I'm doing and I like to determine what I do and I think that we're giving women the license to think like that because we've had more time to be introspective so I think it's a massive positive and that's why things like this and this community and the raw community and the work we do with HSBC is so useful because hopefully it's giving women the network support and confidence to think differently about how they work and and why they work and what their why is yeah 100 percent and I think that's 
why things like what we're doing right now are so important is to get the news out there. Yeah. There's always a different way you can look at things. So, you know, kind of going back to legacy when you have your business, because people are very interested in how they grow and how they scale. How have you been able to either bring people along with you in the journey or how have you been able to embed your legacy through businesses as they scale? It's really hard. It's the hardest thing. People's always the hardest thing, right? Every aspect of it. Culture, hiring, hiring for purpose, hiring for fit, hiring for talent. The difference between you being 10 people and 200 people. I definitely feel there's a number in my experience of scaling businesses of about 50 beyond which everything changes. You don't know people's names in the same way. You don't know the names of their husbands or partners or wives or you know like it, it you can't get your arms around it and you have to lean in much harder to structure and process and hiring gets done without you in the room and all that important stuff I, I grew into that through doing not through knowing because my first business was such a roller coaster you know we went from me um to about um 300 people in a just shy of 18 months right so and I was a baby and everybody I employed was older than me and it's an amazing first business because you learn the economics of it I got into some really good habits about managing cash flow I check the bank account every day I still do that by the way um which doesn't leave you as a habit like where are we on cash I developed um, a culture which has always been the culture in the businesses that I've run that's very commercial and very open low hierarchy we talk about company performance every day we talk about it to everybody and there are different schools of thought on that but I think if you're asking people to join a startup that becomes a scale-up you need to tell them how it's doing even if it's not doing very well and you should see everybody in the room as a shareholder because they should be a shareholder. I mean, we, we have the same thing at Albright where everybody in the business is an option holder, whether they're serving tea and coffee in the club or whether they're, you know, running commercial partnerships. I think if you're going to ask people to pull hard towards an end and to pull through some really difficult times, and Albright has had amazing times and really difficult times, then I think you owe them honesty, transparency and ownership. Um, so those things I think have always mattered. It's amazing having a co-founder. I was extremely blessed with my choice of business partner with AJ. It's easy for us. So I think we've been lucky, you know, when we when we raise investment rounds, we can get onto all of this and everybody wants us to pin down like who does what and what's my job description. And like we've never really had to do it. It's just kind of obvious, partly because we've got different backgrounds, different skill sets, different ways of dealing with things. But my point on that, on culture, is I think that AJ and I set the culture together, which is this open, honest, dark sense of humor driven way of, of, of trying to motivate people towards a common goal. And I think that we can hopefully develop the best culture for them because of our differences as well as our similarities. I love hearing about your partnership there. And it sounds almost like a dance. Yeah, how you guys interact with each other to lead. And how can you describe how that evolved? How you hand over the reins or how, do you have any examples or guidance around how you can pick out those parts of what you guys do well and and marry those together? So I've never really had a business partner 
in the way AJ and I were 50-50 and everything we do equal. Um, I've never really had that before, but number one with AJ, we're both, as we would describe it, maniacs on a mission. So we work all the time, but we love it. But number two, I have so much respect for her and her career prior to Albright, which is so utterly different to anything I could ever have done, that um, in the beginning, we split very easily by skill set, right? So she knew all of the right people. She could handle that hiring. She could set in place the business model. She could, this was quite easy. We needed to raise money. That's what I'm good at. And I've done it my whole working life. And AJ had never done anything like that before. And still, when we get onto convertible notes with a discount, so she's like, okay, you deal with that. So she can sit through really long HR meetings. I just lose the will to live and I can't. And I can sit with lawyers and bankers. And she can't. so the, it kind of fell into like very quickly, okay, I can do this and you can do that given what we've done before and given our temperament. So we never had to really map it. Now that wow. that might be luck. And I know other people do it much more formally, but my advice would be pick someone who does something that you can't do. So I think there's a real point of self-knowledge and recognizing as an entrepreneur what you're good at and what you're not good at. Then the final thing is temperament. So I, I am not a um, shouter in life or relationships you know there are those people who can say terrible things and then they can't remember that they ever said it It doesn't really matter I can remember anything terrible anyone said to me in my entire life and AJ's the same so so we we never do that we we and I think I'd had a business kind of partnership before where someone was that person and they'd say that was crap and I'd be totally hurt and AJ and I just don't roll like that. We always find a way to laugh. We hate a rat. We've never had a row. I've never had a row with my brother my entire life. So that really matters to me. And I think what we have in common is that we're very cooperative and respectful of each other's points of view. I'm going to go back to something that you said at the very beginning of this call where you were talking about one of your exits. And the way you said it, I can't remember exactly how you said it, but it was almost like you began with the end in mind. Some people don't think about making money as selling the business or exiting the business, but it almost sounds like that was on your mind from the very beginning. I mean, how do you go about creating an exit plan and and do you normally start with the end in mind? Yeah, you have to. We're raising money from other people. So why are you taking money off them unless you're going to make them money? Like, you know, I'm very kind of practical about this stuff. So AJ and I cycled through before we landed on this is a thing and we knew we wanted to do stuff together and also in my life as an investor I always ask both to the entrepreneur and to myself who's buying it because if no one's buying it what are you doing like it's a hobby politely if you've raised money I mean I know people do things in lots of different ways but love home swaps was as follows which is for the first year and a half maybe of running the business so we'd raise some money we'd raise some conventional venture capital money from mmc ventures and some angels and i'd invested and it was fine you know i live in london you live in paris i want to swap my home you're in london i'm paris but we it wasn't really scaling that quickly what happened was i went to a conference be in the room don't be in your kitchen and i heard someone from the timeshare industry speak right, about Mm -hmm. which I knew absolutely nothing. 
And I thought, oh my God, that's what we do. You know, it's timeshare, but it's part of the sharing economy and it's making money and saving money from the assets. How does that work? It's all about liquidity. And it works through creating a currency where I bank my time and I can trade my time, right? So it's like a three-way swap, essentially. So if I'm London and you're Paris, and I want to go to Paris, but you want to go to Cape Town, how can I create a currency system that enables you to bank the weeks in your home and trade it, right? A true marketplace. And that that was the thing, obviously just, we didn't just create that product feature overnight, but it took a bit of time, but that was the thing that absolutely supercharged the growth of that business, freed up the liquidity, made those two ratios look really exciting. And, and because of that, and I was like, okay, that is where we should land. So I'm going to find the three biggest timeshare companies in the world. I mean, it literally was like that. And I'm going to so have a conversation with them, tell them about what we're doing and see whether there's any traction there. So to cut a very long story short, I got in front of Wyndham, the mm-hmm. hotel group who owned RCI, the biggest timeshare group in the world. And so this is what we're doing. I had a deck and I think that there could be a really interesting way of giving your premium timeshare owners access to real life homes because that's the newfangled thing. So we did a deal with them. It worked. Six months later, they invested in the business with a two-year option to buy. And then they bought. Again, it was not that straightforward. There were quite a lot of bumps in the road. So my point is, when I founded Love Homes, did I think I'm going to sell it to the world's biggest timeshare business? No. (laughs) Like, really, no. Did I Had I ever thought about timeshare in my life? No. But just be in the world. Like, stuff stuff happens and you meet people and you go okay it's that that's so motivational and I tell you when you tell a story I think about all of the anxiety and inside and outside of HSBC and you described a real life scenario of just agility and curiosity and you know you have it in spades and it's clearly it's clearly um, made a huge impact on others and, and successful businesses a big thank you to you Debbie do you have any parting comments of wisdom that you would like to share with the group? I think just keep being part of these networks. I think one of the things that I have really learned over time is sometimes it's, you don't need to have your game face on. Um, (laughs) And um, if you can find groups of people where you can drop that for a bit, I think that's so important. I think my younger self didn't realize you ever could, you know, because I was kind of pretending a bit. But I think the older I've got, the better I've got at having people around me where I can say this didn't work or, you know, the real, real. And I think AJ and I have got quite a strong group of female founders that you would all know and see as having been like, you know, extremely successful. And the level of honesty that goes on within that group is really strong. So I think just it's sort of circling back to being in the room, which, you know, is always the thing that I will say, but just have your networks of people that you can be honest with about the bad things as well as the good things. And you can ask honest questions of and get honest feedback. It's one of the most important things in my working life. And it's one of the things I try to do with anybody that asks me for help on stuff. But I think everybody is fighting their own fight and we yeah. are all operating in new territories and we are all spending most of our working lives asking men for money not always but a lot of the time 
So I think the more that we can share our learnings and experiences around that, the stronger that we will be together, the more successful that we'll have, and the more that we can create this community and sisterhood of awesome women. That's a great way to end off is talking about sisterhood. So Debbie, a huge thank you for you today. Thanks, Claudia. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to Inspiring Progressive Female Entrepreneurs, HSBC's podcast mini-series dedicated to supporting women on the path of growing and scaling their own businesses. To access more resources for female entrepreneurs, please refer to the description of this podcast. Thank you for joining us for HSBC Talks Business. To learn more about anything you heard today, please visit business.hsbc.com.